0: Transfiguration, uh, talking about God's glory, and I think Ben put it well that uh, on that glory and suffering in the Christian life are tied together. they kind of we want to look at that whole spectrum. So if you think about what glory is, it's kind of the opposite of suffering. You know, it's uh, what is what is majestic, what is hopeful, uh, beautiful, life giving, strong. Um, restful what is bright and light um what is true uh those things are glorious um and so we're gonna be yeah we're gonna be talking about that i think a lot of us don't understand what glory is i still have it's, it's just a very it could be a very abstract thing um that we just don't understand uh because we don't really see glory in our day-to-day lives um And I think that it kind of keeps us from understanding who Jesus is, but that is okay (laughs) because we're in good company because the disciples are confused about who Jesus is. Uh, So we've been going through this semester, we're going through Luke and a little bit in Mark, uh, looking at encounters with Jesus and through through the whole book of Luke up to so far, uh, the disciples are confused about who Jesus is. You know they're always asking, "Who is this? Who is this man who can calm a storm? Who is this who can forgive sins? Uh, you know, who is this man who can cast out demons?" Uh, they don't quite understand who Jesus is. A couple of verses before what we're going to look at tonight, um, Jesus asks him, "You know, who do people say that I am?" And Peter says, "Oh, well, some say." Uh, You're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a great prophet. He's like, Peter, who do you say I am? He's like, you're the Christ, uh, which is God's chosen Messiah. And so Peter understands it. He knows Jesus is the Christ. But I think we're going to see in here, he's even confused. He doesn't quite get what that means. Um, And so we're going to go on a little trip with Peter, James, and John. And I think we're going to see that they need uh, sort of vision correction. They need help seeing who Jesus really is. Um, they don't quite understand them. They get confused by him. Uh, and especially, I think, something that really confuses them in this section is uh, Jesus starts talking about suffering. He starts talking about dying. He says, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be handed over and killed. Um, and that's just they think he's this mighty king who's going to come in and kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and take over. Um, And they're like, wait, wait, you're going to die. Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, It'd be like, it'd be like in Lord of the Rings, you know, within 15 minutes of meeting Aragorn, he's like, well, guys, pretty soon I'm out of here and you're on your own. And they're like, wait, whoa, what, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. Right. It's confusing. Um, so I think we're, yeah, we're in good company with the disciples in uh, needing help to see who Jesus really is. Uh, would you stand with me while we read our passage from Luke 9? <clears throat> this is Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James And went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. We are so thankful that here we have a the words of life pointing to Jesus. Uh, we're thankful that you would um, reveal yourself to us in a way that we can study and dig into and read and wrestle with and share with each other. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, um, that you would help me, uh, help us to understand um, what you're saying in this passage through Luke, through Peter, James, and John through Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Um, Lord, help us to understand um, who you are. Um, I pray that you would uh, send your spirit, and Lord, that you would uh, break our hard hearts that are selfish and tired, um, and that don't want to expend energy thinking about things. But Lord, um, I pray that we would see Jesus as more beautiful And more believable uh, than we do now. Um, Lord, be with us and help us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Mm. So, Moses and Elijah. uh, Most of you probably know of them or have heard of them. Maybe from like children's stories growing up. Um, Moses, you probably know about from the, the Prince of Egypt movie, you know, where he's, he's the Hebrew, uh, who grows up in the Egyptian king or Pharaoh grows up in his courts. Um, and he leads God, he leads God's people out of slavery. Uh, but Moses also was the one to, uh, in the book of Exodus, once they've left Egypt and they're in the, the wilderness, Moses is the one who receives and he writes down the 10 commandments. Um, well, he's he receives these giant stone tablets with them on them uh, yeah, and, and so he was you know, he 's a well known Hebrew. Uh, Elijah was a prophet uh, in in the Old Testament. He preached against false gods like Baal. He would go around saying, "No, no, no, stop worshiping these false gods that don 't exist. come and worship the true and living God, uh, come back." Um, so these two, Moses and Elijah, these two were—they were kind of Hebrew heroes. Uh, Peter, James, and John would have known them; uh, they would have revered them. They would have, they would have known all the stories. They knew why they were significant uh, in the history of God's people. Um, even sometimes, uh, the Old Testament is referred to as Moses and the Prophets. When uh, when the New Testament writers and Jesus Himself even. When they, were, when they want to use like a shorthand term for the whole Old Testament, they say Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets. Um, so Moses and Elijah were, in a sense, they're a representative of the whole Old Testament. Um, and, and Peter, James, Peter, James, and John would have known this. They would have, uh, they would have picked up on that. Like, oh, whoa, Moses and Elijah are here. The law and the prophet. Um, so so we read that, that Jesus takes them up on the mountain to pray, uh, these three followers of his. Uh, but why did... So I think my first point I want to know is why did Jesus bring them up on the mountain? Um, why would he take them up there with him? And this is not just kind of like, oh, let's go see some people who have come down from heaven who have been dead for several, several hundred years. Uh, and this is not like... Let's do a meet-and-greet with your childhood heroes. Um, this is not like, come to the mall and see the Power Rangers, and they can like sign your little autograph book. Um, no, Jesus, he brings Peter and James and John up on the mountain with him to demonstrate who he is, who Jesus is. He wants to give them more of a taste of his identity, of his true nature. Um, so Moses and Elijah come, and they speak. They says, they came in glory and spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure. This is something he had mentioned like six verses earlier. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter, James, and John... They had heard about this, I mean, just a week before this happens. um, They've heard, oh, yeah, Jesus' departure. I've heard him talk about that before. Um, But this is, I think this is why Moses and Elijah come. uh, Why they come and they speak of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. I think they came to show the disciples that Jesus is... ...the Messiah that they've been waiting for. That Jesus is the Savior that the entire New Testament talks about. Moses and the prophets have been uh, foretelling that one day a Savior will come. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, uh, we have uh, the promise that the seed of the woman... ...that a, a kid born of a woman would come and he would crush the head of the serpent... So, throughout their entire history, the hebrews the israelites the god 's people they 've been waiting um, for a Messiah to come to save them from their enemies and from their own sins, uh, from their own brokenness um, and we know that we know that the old testament is, is all about Jesus because Jesus himself says that uh, in luke twenty four at the end of the book. Um He meets two of his followers and and they don't recognize who he is for some reason uh, he's kind of uh, veiled to them, I guess um, and he says, "Did you not know from the from the scriptures didn't you know that the Son of Man would have to suffer and die? And then it says he proceeded to tell him to to tell them all about himself throughout Moses and all the prophets um, so all of a sudden. Peter, James, and John are seeing more of a confirmation of, oh, this is not just some new guy. No, this is the Messiah that the Old Testament has been telling us will come. The Old Testament testifies to. I mean, at that point, that was all of their Bible. They didn't have any of the New Testament writings. So, so their vision is starting to be corrected, right? They're like, oh, wait, this isn't, you know, this Jesus, we know he's the Christ, but this is more confirmation that the Old Testament has been pointing forward to Jesus the whole time. Um, so what? Uh, if the Old Testament talks about Jesus, um, what is, like, why does that matter to us right here this week as we're tired uh as we're looking forward to spring break, as we have midterms weighing down on us. Because um, it helps us know where to look. It helps us not to look at Moses and Elijah. It points out that this is not about good examples. Uh, it's not about be brave like Moses and, or, or just have faith that's as strong as Elijah and you will defeat all of your enemies and pass your tests. Uh, in, a, in a sense, Moses and Elijah are kind of like the moon. The moon can be incredibly bright and beautiful. Sometimes you can even read, read by it if it's bright enough. But what happens when you actually discover what the moon is? You learn that the, the sun actually reflects off of it. And that's what gives it its light. And after you learn that, you don't keep talking about how bright the moon is. You're like, oh man, look at all that light coming from the moon. No, now that you know where the light comes from, you point to the sun, to the true source of that light. So Moses and Elijah are here, they're here to point to Jesus, um, that, to illuminate him, to say, no, 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 no. Don't take the Bible, don't take the Old Testament as a bunch of good examples, like, oh man, just be like Daniel. You know, in the lion's den, just pray hard and you'll be delivered. It's saying, no, no, no. The whole Old Testament is pointing forward to Jesus, to the one who will suffer and die for his people. Um, Jesus is the purpose of the entire Bible. And if we miss this, if we miss this paradigm of, of (laughs) of mistaking things for Jesus... For glorious things, uh, that gets us in a lot of trouble. Um, think about um, think about power or security. Like, if I just get this job, if I just get this internship, I will be comfortable. That's where life will be. I will be satisfied. But the the good things, they aren't necessarily like life giving in and of themselves but they point to something that's better. What about sex or looking at porn? When we look at them, we mistake them as something that's life-giving, that is glorious, um, that will bring us satisfaction. But then we get there, and it's like standing on the moon. It's like, where's all the light? It's like standing on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> um, that isn't That we find out that's not where glory in life is. Glory in life is not trying to imitate some good examples from the Old Testament. Um, yeah. None of, those, none of those things work like they should when we treat them as kind of an ultimate source of life. Um, and when we miss that, we miss the entire point of the Bible. Um, because it all points to Jesus. Um, so Moses and Elijah, I think this is so cool. We have the Old Testament standing here with Jesus in front of Peter, James, and John, some of the writers of the New Testament who are going to write part of the Bible to us. And they're saying, no, it's not about, it's not about keeping the law, and it's not about being a good person or being moral or keeping, you know, following a good example. It's about Jesus. Everything points to him. Um, so next, uh, next, let's look at okay, the voice in the cloud. Um, that's kind of a big deal. So, sort of in the in the shock of seeing Jesus in all his glory, uh, and Moses and Elijah there with him, he, Peter offers to set up tents. He's like, "Oh yeah, let me uh, set up some tents for you." It's it's a good thing I'm here. Um, I, this is probably referring, uh, to something called the, the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles. It's another word for a tent. Um, and it was a Hebrew tradition of, of waiting for the Messiah to come. They would go and they would set up tents in the middle of the desert, um, awaiting the return of Elijah, which is kind of prophesied at the very, very end of the old Testament. Um. But in Mark's narrative, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about the transfiguration. They all talk about this time on this mountaintop, um, and Mark says that Peter isn't sure of what to say because he's terrified. He's not just kind of like, "Oh, I'm going to like make a sarcastic joke," or "I'm just going to say something that's nonsense." He's frightened. He's he's feeling the weight of terror, of just awe at seeing the Ancient of Days, Jesus, the Messiah, in his glory. He's undone. He's kind of unsure of what to do or say, and he's just, okay, uh, let me, hey, how about I set up some, some tabernacles for you? Um, and then in the midst of this, in the midst of his confusion, uh, a very <laughs> clarifying voice comes The cloud comes, and it covers the mountain, and a voice comes out of it. Now, that seems really weird to us, right? Like, you're up on a mountain, and there's some clouds, and you hear a voice. You're not thinking, oh, it must be God speaking to me. You're probably thinking, okay, maybe it's, like, a lost hiker, or it's someone coming to, like, mug me and steal my nice camping gear. Um, You're probably not thinking it's God, but... Uh, Peter, James, and John had a little bit different of a vantage point. Um, they knew they knew the Old Testament, and in Exodus 19 and in 34, um, the, both those chapters, Moses he goes up to Mount Sinai, uh, which is in the middle of this desert, um, and God comes down upon the mountain in a cloud. Uh, and there there are flashes of lightning. And there's thunder all around, and it's a very thick cloud that's covering the top of the mountain. And then Moses call, or God calls Moses up to the mountain to speak to him, to give him the Ten Commandments. Um, and when, when Moses comes down, his face is shining. They said that all of his skin was aglow, And he didn't know it. <laughs> Everyone else is saying her going, "Oh my gosh, Moses is glowing, He's shining." Um, Because he had been speaking with God. So, for Peter, James, and John, when they hear a voice coming out of a cloud, they know it's God. They know the Old Testament. They're being reminded of what happens when, well, we've got a thick cloud that's descended on top of a mountain. There are people who are shining. Jesus himself is with us, Uh, Moses is here, and a voice is coming out of the cloud. And they're they're still confused about Jesus' identity. They need still they need correction. They need guidance. They need affirmation of who he is. And here we have God Himself, the Father, <laughs> speaking out of the cloud. Telling them exactly who they're following, exactly who Peter calls master. Um, he's telling them exactly who Jesus is. This is my son. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, or Abraham, Jacob, sorry. And all the way now, I'm the same God, and this is my son, who I've been promising for thousands of years. Now listen to him. It's as if Moses and Elijah being there, speaking about Jesus' departure, it's like that was not enough, um, So God kind of pulls out the big guns. Um, But this isn't new either. Like, hearing God's voice speak about Jesus. um, In Luke 3, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, there's a voice from heaven saying, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So so it's like, (laughs) I think we're just like the disciples. We say, oh, we might say, okay, Jesus is the Son of God but we need constant affirmation and reminders and correction drawing our vision back to this is Jesus this is the redeemer the savior who has come to suffer and die for sinners so god's pulling out all the stops convincing peter and james and john and us that this is jesus is his son he's the messiah and he's worthy of our attention and our worship. Um, so, lastly, let's let's look at what Moses and Jesus and Elijah were talking about. In verse thirty-one, it says, "When Moses and Elijah show up, they show up in, they appear in glory, and they speak of His departure, which was a, He was about to accomplish." in Jerusalem. This is kind of weird. Like, in the midst of people appearing from heaven and Jesus shining in his glory, and they start talking about his departure, his death, his leaving. It's like in this glorious, amazing, majestic, huge moment, they're on the top of a mountain, Moses and Elijah have come down from heaven, and they're like, all right, let's talk about you dying. It just seems strange. The The word for departure here, the Greek word is exodus. That's something that Moses knows a lot about. <laughs> it's hearkening back to Israel being redeemed out of Egypt. There's, that was no small feat. That was no kind of walk in the park. It's like over over six hundred thousand Israelites, they just up and they fled out of Egypt. There's a huge exit. It's kind of a very certain event, a decisive leaving. So why would they talk about him leaving, his departure, his exodus in the middle of this glorious scene? And here's I think where where this passage really challenges us and really will shift our paradigm of what we think of suffering and what we think of glory. He doesn't just appear in glory for the shiny clothes and to hang out with some old friends, but he has a reason. He has a reason for allowing the disciples to see this and for us to see it through their writing. If we read back a couple of verses to 21 and 22, Jesus says he will be rejected He will be handed over and he will be killed. That's suffering. That doesn't make sense. He's supposed to be the Savior, the Messiah. Come to save God's people, to gather them. Um, He's the king. He's supposed to come usher in the kingdom and to rule in justice and goodness and truth. He's supposed to save us from our sins. He's supposed to calm the storm's Of life. And then all of a sudden, there's all this talk about suffering and death and leaving. And then, about 10 verses later, he talks about it again. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. As Jesus, sorry, as Peter, James, and John are seeing Jesus in his true nature, his glorious nature, he starts talking about his exodus and his leaving and his dying. And he's teaching us something that's uh, pretty, pretty kind of radical, something that we don't understand, that his glory is tied up with his suffering. It's bound together with his suffering. He doesn't have glory without suffering. Suffering for sinners. He's going to Jerusalem uh, right after this passage, at the end of chapter 9. Been preached on either last week or the week before about Jesus setting his face to go to Jerusalem. He had a mission to accomplish He's going to die. And as Moses and Elijah are here reminding us, that's been plan A since sin entered the world. Was not, all right, we'll see if we can kind of get everyone into shape, see if they can try harder. But no, since Genesis 3, Jesus has been promised. But all throughout the Old Testament, as well as the New, in Jesus' words himself... We know he's going to suffer. It's not going to be fun. He's going to bear the weight of the sins of his people, of sinners, of people who are far off, who are weak, who don't really care about him. But his glory is so closely wed to his suffering that he can't separate the two. You remember we talked about Moses and Elijah speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. His mission that he's going to do. In John seventeen, in what's uh, it's called the High Priestly Prayer, and Jesus is praying to his Father, and he said, "I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence." With the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is not only glorious because he is God. He's part of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But his suffering and dying on the cross for us, for sinners, it glorifies the Father in heaven. So glory and suffering are tied together. You can't, you can't have one without the other. Jesus, he sees glory, right? He knows, I'm going I'm to glorify the Father by accomplishing the work that he has given me to do, saving sinners. And God will glorify me with his own presence in heaven. So he knows that true glory... True goodness and hopefulness and brightness and life is not running away from suffering, but it's, you have to go through it. So, how, how does this change how we think about glory or life or suffering? I think we have to ask ourselves and it's something I've been asking myself the last couple days and it's uh, I don't like it. Uh, (laughs) Do we want glory and life and hope that's easy or do we want it true glory that's hard won? Um, Some examples I can think of of where this applies in life, Um, with your parents. uh, Your relationship with your parents—is it better? I have a hard relationship with my parents. Uh, We just, yeah, it's very frustrating, and it's hard to love them. (laughs) Um, But is is true life found by? If I I want that to live, to thrive, to grow, to be glorious and beautiful, that relationship with my parents, do I avoid suffering? Do I just, well, maybe I'll just call them once a month so we don't really have to interact and I won't go home and visit very often. Do I avoid suffering or do I plunge into it? Having hard conversations and spending time with them and keeping up with them. Um. And having honest conversations about how they've hurt me and how I'm sorry I've hurt them. Pressing into that relationship. Um, I think think that's where Jesus is showing us that life and glory and goodness is through suffering to glory. And not skirting around it or, or running right away from it. That suffering and things that are hard, we have to go through them for the good things. What about what about a roommate who's really hard to love? How do we find life and glory in that struggle to learn to love them? Uh, do we do we just escape from it? Kind of like, well, don't know how to do that, so I'm going to go over here and see you later um do we just escape or do we press into that do we press into someone who frustrates us or who's hard to love or just confusing I don't know I don't know what they want (laughs) they seem they seem to want something different every day um or just someone we don't like um Do we avoid them, or do we press harder into that relationship and learn to love them by dealing with things that are—they're hard. They're not fun. We have to struggle. We have to fail, and we have to learn, and we have to get back up again and continue uh, to try to love them. Or well, here's one. How about sex? Uh, <laughs> Think about pornography or kind of sleeping around with anyone you can find versus marriage. Uh, Pornography, it's easy. It doesn't require any commitment. There's no complicated relationship involved. You don't really have to sacrifice anything. You can have it on demand. When you want it on your terms, right? There's no, there's no suffering there. At, at least it seems like at first. And then marriage, on the other hand, marriage it makes you die to yourself. You have to give up things that you love. You have to start to prefer the other person over yourself. You have to say no. Something that hurts me is better for them. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to love them. I'm going to lay down my life for them. And it it requires you to be vulnerable. They see who you really are. They see all your good and bad parts. But in, in that, in the midst of that struggle, sex is meant to bind those two people together. It's meant to be a sign that things are hard. And they will always be hard. Because we're two sinners who love to bump heads. But I'll be here for you. We're bound together by that. So glory and goodness and beauty in that is not found by just escaping, running away from hard things, locking yourself in your room. But but glory in sex is found by diving into the mess of marriage that's worth making. We know it's worth making because God made it and he said it's good and he loves it. Um, Yeah. So I think we looked at through like kind of three ways that luke is helping us correct our vision helping us see the true jesus he's helping us see that this is not old testament judaism and new testament christianity and jesus only belongs to one of them he's helping us to see that it's all one continuum that from the very beginning the god of the whole bible has set forth to save his people and to bring them to himself and he helps us see that Jesus is his son, his very son that he would give up, that he would send to die in the place of sinners who couldn't care less about him. And then it, it corrects, maybe in probably the most practical way, of just how do we see life? if we're living life as followers of Jesus, do we escape from life? <laughs> or do we walk into it knowing it will be hard, but knowing that Jesus has been there and he will be there with you? Did you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your gospel, that you would die on a cross and say that whoever believes in you, whoever calls you Lord, shall have life in your name. Lord, we're we're thankful um, for the passage that was read earlier. That after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Lord, to you be the dominion forever and ever. We pray uh, that you would help us to see Jesus with new eyes, um, soften our hearts, that we would be captivated and caught up Um in the glory of God who would suffer for his people. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we pray that we would um, that you would continue to to pierce our hard hearts with the hope of your gospel. The good news that you would die for us. And it's in your name that we pray.